Well, welcome back to On Point. My name is David Peck, and uh, we have a, another guest here with us tonight to chat about uh, this, uh, what I'm going to call ongoing conversation. I mean, what isn't an ongoing conversation, really? But when you're talking about, uh, you know, the fruits of applied science and the scientific community and, and what's happening in the, in the healthcare uh, industry uh, globally with the advancement uh, and, and, and even this announcement that Larry and I were talking about, super important implications for other fields as well. And we have a doctor here with us. A neurosurgeon, actually, Dr. Nur Lipsman. Uh, he is the principal investigator and neurosurgeon and director of the Harkail Center for Neuromodulation at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Dr. Lipsman, thank you for joining us on the show tonight. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, Dr. Lipsman, did I get that right? Is it the Harkail or Harkail Center? Yeah, Harkail. Exactly. No, Har- you got it, it is. Right. It is our quail center. Exactly. Nice. That's good. That's good. So, hey, let's listen. Let's start, step right in. I don't know if you heard any of our, our guests before. Larry Gifford, who who's been a you know, he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's for about five years. He's uh, works with Chorus Entertainment, director of Talk Radio, has a podcast. He's he's working on advocacy and and activism and public engagement and all these wonderful things, telling people's stories. You're kind of working on the other side of this. And when I looked at your CV. Uh, you know, there's a couple words on there. I'm not sure I can pronounce. Um, can can you can you tell us a little bit more about some of what's going on and and and, and uh, you know, with respect to even this new discovery uh, of this artificial neuron and about releasing dopamine, but also deep brain stimulation. That's another yeah. piece of technology that's just mind-boggling. Absolutely. No, I mean, I think that's great, and um, you know. The, the work of your colleague really underscores, you said it right, I mean, uh, it's not so much we work on the other side of it, we really work hand-in-hand, hand, uh, you know, with mm. patients to try to develop right. develop these technologies. Uh, you know, so Parkinson's disease is common. Uh, it's very challenging. It's uh, among the most common what we call neurodegenerative conditions. So it's a condition where dopamine in the brain gradually over time begins to deplete. Uh, and the system and the brain that's implicated and that's involved in that is going to be the motor system mostly. So that's where you get most of the symptoms of Parkinson's, the slowing down and the tremor and the rigidity, et cetera. So most of the time patients get referred to a neurologist and a neurologist will make the diagnosis and, and often start patients on, on medication. What happens over time, because that underlying process continues, that loss right, of neurons right. and loss of dopamine continues. and um, the scientific field and neuroscience and neurologists and neurosurgeons have been laser focused for the last few decades on trying to stop that process, on trying to alter what we call the natural history of Parkinson's disease, so that inexorable kind of uh, degeneration of, the, of those neurons. How do we make that dopamine stop from being depleted over time? And different kinds of technologies have been tried. So, so far, uh, a lot of the treatments that we have are what we call symptomatic treatments. They treat the right. symptoms of Parkinson's. So they may treat tremor and they may treat the rigidity and other aspects. But so far, the field is lacking a, uh, um, a treatment that changes the history, changes that scope and that slope of the disease. And that's really what we're after. And that's where different kinds of technologies like deep brain stimulation and the kind of work that you're mentioning, the artificial neuron, which is very much in the, in the early stages, but quite promising, you know, we'll, we'll shed light on, on, on where we're going. I, I, I don't even, you know, it's, it, it, you know, standing on the other side of this, I, I started out, uh, you know, in my younger years as a construction worker, you know, electrician, 
still pay my non-working dues to the local 353 here in Toronto, the IBEW, and quite proud of that, actually. Still use the same pair of pliers I bought, you know, four <laughs> years ago. Your your tools, your instruments are a little yeah. more delicate, a little finer. Um, I don't I don't know if you heard the, the, the segment, but my father had Parkinson's and he had a palindotomy. Yeah. And I remember yeah. him telling yeah. us how he was wide awake for this. Uh, and yeah. He came out of this, what, what would it have been about a seven or eight hour surgery yeah. awake on the table and he had a band-aid on his head yeah fascinating you know fascinating. Yeah. well it really is can you talk a little bit about these some of these complexities yeah. and and, and sure. it's just it's it's kind of i use the word i'm using it again mind-boggling no yeah. pun intended but it no, truly, truly is it's fascinating because pallidotomy is still actually used uh, we still use pallidotomy uh, to try symptoms and that's one of the you know really interesting things about neurosurgery and surgery for parkinson's and and what we try to do is match up the surgery and the treatment to the kinds of symptoms that patients have. So what we know and what we've known now really since, let's say, the 70s and 80s, is that there are circuits in the brain that aren't functioning properly once that dopamine is depleted. And that's the motor circuit of the brain. Right. And then we know that those circuits are made up, the way that I think about them is kind of cities and highways. We have cities in the brain that are connected with highways, which is different kinds of tracks in the brain to other cities in the brain. And when there's dysfunction in one of those cities, it causes a network-wide issue. So what procedures like pallidotomy do, do and what deep brain stimulation does, it tries to very precisely intervene in one of those cities and in one of those highways in order to influence the entire circuit to reset it and to try to address one of the symptoms. So what pallidotomy does, it's a procedure that generates a lesion in the brain, a permanent hole in the brain to try to destroy one of those, let's call them cities, one of those regions in an effort to reset the activity in the brain to, to treat a specific symptom. And what DBS tries to do, and this started around mid-90s, is to replace pallidotomy, replace those lesion procedures with a more reversible procedure. So at DBS, what deep brain stimulation is, is a kind of pacemaker for the brain. It's basically a procedure where rather than everybody's heard of pacemakers for the heart, where you have a battery and the electrodes go to the heart to stimulate the heart or to pace it if the heart rate is too slow, here the electrodes go into the brain and they kind of jam that very same circuit. So rather than causing a, a permanent hole, they, they overwhelm it with a tiny bit of electricity so that it, it disrupts that circuit and causes the symptoms to, to improve. So it really is a kind of pacemaker but for the brain, it's a reversible procedure and one that is becoming really the standard of care for patients with Parkinson's who have reached the limit of what medical treatments can do. And, and so far, about 200,000 patients around the world have undergone DBS wow. in the last 20 years. So it's really, it's Health Canada approved for condition for Parkinson's, for a condition known as essential tremor, for epilepsy, and for dystonia. That's another kind of motor condition. Highly effective, uh, obviously offered in, in, in highly specialized centers where we work very, very closely with our neurology colleagues to choose the best patients that we can match up the treatment to them. But pallidotomy is still in our tool chest, something we still use. And as you said, um, you know, oftentimes patients go home the next day after this procedure. Yeah, it's, it's, it really is remarkable. I mean, a question I always have for these types of treatments is where do, where do you start? Like, where where did this start? And if I'm, I'm maybe when we come back from the break, we can talk a little bit more about some of the implications and, and some of the other uh, diseases. And, and, and um, uh, I forget what you actually referred to them as. I was going to say slow onset, but uh, yeah. neurological, not a neurological disorder. What was it? 
neurodegenerative conditions. Neuro, neurological neurodegenerative, yeah. Neuro, yeah, neurodegenerative exactly. conditions. Yeah. Well, listen, let's let's chat a little bit more about that. And sure. I I love to I love your um uh, I love your positivity as well, Doctor Lebson. It's it's uh I mean, how long ago would this have been considered? You know, black. You know, dark magic. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's and what's interesting is that uh, so surgeons have been involved in treating neurosurgeons specifically involved in treating neurological and and even psychiatric disorders. You know, going back you know six or seven decades since the 30s sure. and 40s. But obviously, you know, the tools were very rudimentary, very basic back then. We didn't have any brain imaging. We didn't have any really really much of anything. It wasn't until like the 60s and 70s where um, things really started to take off, and that's when. The tools became much finer, precision really increased, brain imaging started to really come of age. And once you get into really high-resolution imaging with with MRIs in the 80s and 90s, that's when we really started to say, okay, let's use these very fine tools that we're using, these probes and these electrodes and these pacemakers, and apply them to, to, to these conditions that are very common, that are debilitating, challenging, and try to find the best possible treatment for them. And and what's interesting is that it's been an exponential curve. So the interest mm-hmm. in, in things like deep brain stimulation, when we looked at this a few years ago, you know, the curve is just exponential. It's not just, you know, every year, a few papers, a few publications, a few research projects. It's hundreds of papers and, and studies that are being done every year, and it's just growing. So there's an intense amount of interest in, in trying to pair the latest technology with with these conditions that are so common and debilitating. Yeah, it's it really is uh, remarkable. The the you know you used a phrase earlier, hand in hand. Yeah. How 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 much, or I guess you could call them uh, different fields, different health fields. How much uh, uh, are the the different fields talking with one another yeah. about you know deep brain stimulation? I know it's used as you had just mentioned for other things, and yeah. I've been reading up on it a little myself. Sure, it's critical. I mean, I you, you cannot overstate just how important. That collaboration is. And, you know, I look at it as a sort of tripartite, you know, collaboration. There's the surgeon. In the case of Parkinson's disease, there's going to be the neurologist and there's going to be the patient, uh, you know, that all of us are sort of huddled over to, to try to help. But, you know, there's a big team. There's our psychologists, there are physiotherapists, occupational therapists, social workers. You know, everybody is trying to really match up. How do we make sure that this treatment that we're offering, which is, which is a tool, how do we make sure that it fits into the life of this particular patient with this particular symptom? So, you know, what I often say is, yeah, yeah DBS is a really, it's, it's a fascinating tool. It's a really effective technology. But, you know, if you don't choose the right patients and if you don't follow them properly after surgery, you know, it's, it's, it's a useless operation. Okay. So it just makes sure, that's where we have to really make sure the patients are seen properly. They're diagnosed by somebody who's an expert, for example, in movement disorders, and that they're seen in centers that have that experience so that we really choose the best possible patients, do the best possible operation, and follow them really closely to make sure that uh, nothing falls through the cracks and that we, we, we really try to give them that best possible care. And that requires constant crosstalk, constant collaboration. Mm. And, you know, we're very fortunate at Sunnybrook and other centers to work uh, in that kind of environment where there's really a seamless sort of discussion amongst all these different specialists. 
No, oh, wow. What a, there's the soundbite for me. Seamless discussion. I mean, you want you want the community working on your behalf, especially when we're you know drilling holes in people's skulls yeah, and, and exactly. doing these types of operations. And uh, it just it's it's uh, it's 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 good news. Speaking of good news uh, today, um, headlines about uh, a man, Newfoundland Labrador. Um, doctors from Toronto treated a man with Parkinson's deep brain stimulation. And here's the quote: "I can drive again." which I couldn't do. I can go in restaurants, which I was too nervous to go to, too afraid of falling down. I can dance again, Martin said. I got my life back. This is George Martin. He's 68 years old. And there's a shot of him walking for beagles. I mean, that yeah. it really does feel a little bit like magic. It's, it's life-changing. Uh, there's no question. And that, that work particularly, that study and that, that program that was developed at, out of the University Health Network by the Movement Disorders team there, what they were able to do, because DBS, once you implant the, 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 the battery and the electrodes, that's not the end. That's really just the beginning. You need to program the device. You need to find the optimal kind of settings with, in terms of the stimulation, the brain stimulation that matches the patient's symptoms and that reduce any possible side effects. And that's a really... Um, sort of one-on-one care that requires a lot of resources and usually requires the patient coming into the hospital. So what that study showed and what they were able to do is actually do that remotely. So this patient was in Newfoundland Mm. with a neurologist in Toronto, and they were able to do that remotely, no longer needing for the patient to come in for the frequent visits. So all of a sudden, DBS becomes a national resource, an international resource, where we, can, we no longer have to be in the same room in order to provide that care for patients. So really interesting work, really game-changing work, taking DBS and making it really a, a more, much more widely applicable and, and available. So we're we're coming near the end of the segment here, but I, I I I'm I'm interested in the crossover. Maybe you've sort of alluded to this already. You know, the community of of, of healthcare workers and surgeons and so on. I don't know what does this kind of stuff happen around the water cooler? But I mean, deep brain stimulation it's being used for Tourette's syndrome, Huntington's disease, but but for me, here, chronic pain and and headaches of a particular kind, according to the World Health Organization half to a third of or three quarters of all adults suffer from some kind of headache. I mean, these are huge implications we're talking about here. They are. They are. And and really what um, the best kind of indications for deep brain stimulation are going to be diseases and conditions where we can directly link the patient's symptoms to a circuit in the brain that we know we can mm. access. So all of those conditions, like you said, are ones where we can we can identify, again, those cities and highways in the brain. Right. And we can specifically target with an electrode. So we know chronic pain, for example. There are regions in the brain that light up on imaging with patients in chronic pain. If we can reduce the activity in those circuits, we have a good chance of helping with chronic pain. Similarly with epilepsy and with the tics of Tourette syndrome. Wow. So yeah. tremendous promise for, for many different kinds of conditions. You know, I think I've used the the word remarkable uh, and mind boggling the phrase mind boggling quite quite a few times today, and it's it just once again uh, makes me want to dig a little bit deeper. I hope for others as well. Uh, it's incredible work, uh, Dr. Lipson. Thank you so thank much you. for taking the time, and I, I I hope people start to peel back some of those layers on their own and dig a little bit deeper. We've well, been thanks. chatting with yeah. Thanks for shining a light on this. Really appreciate it, and, uh, and best of luck uh, to your to your guest. And uh, thank you again. Dr. Lipsman, my name's David Peck. You're listening to On Point.